friend from Ireland joining me, Dr. Sean Travers. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. Thank you for inviting me back on the show, and I'm looking forward to reviewing Twin Peaks every Friday. It's nice to watch it again. It is. Uh, Before we get into Twin Peaks, I'll just remind everyone that the Cult Film Companion podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Please follow Dr. Sean Travers on uh, Instagram as well uh, and Twitter. Are you on Instagram? I know that you're on Twitter. Um, um, yeah, I'm on Instagram too, but um, I spend more time on Twitter, but I do post the, the pictures on Twitter and on, on Instagram as well. Wow, I really messed up that sentence, but yeah, you guys get it. Yeah, I was going to say, I always... I always conflate the two. I just wish there was like a yeah. Twittergram instead of Instagram. It, it would make things a lot easier. The Cult Film Companion podcast is also available on the Blind Knowledge Collective, where we have the podcast Mountain, where we are a part of, and there's also video casts from around the world. So check out all the fine creators over at blindknowledge.com. We are also available on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that captures the latest trending articles based on topics that you choose to follow and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. Stop scrolling, start listening, download and use Newsly for free today at www.newsly.me and please use the promo code C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's Cult Film, drop the I, pop it a one and get a month free of their premium service courtesy of us. Now, due to popular demand... We had previously covered last month uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me by director Artur David Lynch, and we thought it would be a lot of fun because we're both big fans of the show, and if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume you're a fan of the show because we're going to be talking all things Twin Peaks in an ongoing series, which will we will be recording every Friday, and then when I get around to editing and mastering and all that good post-production stuff I'll be dropping. But this is something that's going to go on. We're going to go start to finish. We actually, ironically, started in the middle, I guess. Kind of in the middle, but also at the beginning, because Twin Peaks is a uh, fire walk with me, is a, I guess a prequel to the, the TV series. But So this episode's going to be devoted to the pilot episode And I just want to note that we are going to be talking about the broadcast version of the pilot episode, and we will eventually get around to doing the international version at some point. But for those of you who don't know, I'm just going to give a couple production and development notes, and then I'm going to hand it over to my co-host. Twin Peaks comes to us from Mark Frost and David Lynch. Now, the pilot episode goes by the also known by the title Northwest Passage, which was going to be the original name of the series, but due to the fact that there actually is a town called Northwest Passage, it was decided against doing so. The film was, um, the TV series, I gotta keep correcting myself, I'm so used to talking to movies. The, the series Twin Peaks was also originally set to take place in North Dakota, and we all, well, most of us know that it, it takes place in the state of Washington, which is all the way on the other side of the country from me, and so it's the Great Northwest, it was going to be called Northwest Passage, and what happened was that the Writers Guild strike happened in 1988, and during this time, 
different production companies were looking for different projects, David Lynch and Mark Frost pitched an idea to ABC. Basically, they had a very, very loose concept, and they also just had an image in mind. And the image, of course, is the famous picture. I guess there's two kind of famous, iconic pictures of Laura Palmer, one of which is the homecoming picture that's framed and is seen in the school and in the Palmer household, and also the iconic image of her um, deceased. They had a very short meeting, and they pitched the idea, and they said, go for it. They liked the idea, and they, they commissioned Lynch and Frost to write a screenplay for the pilot episode. Lynch and Frost wanted to mix a uh, police procedural, a police investigation with the common tropes that are found in a soap opera. And that's kind of what we get here. It does get a little bit more um, erratic and sci-fi and horror-esque, depending on the episode or the, uh, the movie itself. Pilot for Twin Peaks was filmed for $1.8 million and... The agreement with ABC was that they filmed the pilot, but then they also film additional material so that if the show didn't go to series and it just remained as a pilot, that they could sell it as a complete film. And I only bring this up because it's actually very similar to what happened later in Lynch's career with Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive was initially developed as a TV series, uh, did not go to series, and ended up being a feature film. One of the um, heads of ABC was a big advocate for the show, and a lot of the network and executives weren't really sold on the concept because they figured that it's not something that's going to appeal to any particular age group or demographic and TV executives, not so much the creative types, but the ones that are, are counting the pennies and the dollars are, are all about which demographics they're going to be able to sell it to so they can sell commercial time. But, which I, I'm very grateful, it did go to series and I've talked enough about the the backstory of my experience with, well, not my experience, but the development of Twin Peaks. So I'm going to hand it over to my co-host, and I'm hoping that she could talk about her first experience with Twin Peaks, the TV series, and uh, kind of exclude the movie for now. But when did you first hear about Twin Peaks, and when were you first able to view it? Oh, um, I've heard about Twin Peaks. Uh, well, I first heard about it when I was a teenager, but I didn't actually sit down and watch it until I was in my 20s during uh, my master's and I was going to write on it that year and I didn't know at that time that I was going to write on it but I ended up liking it so much then it sort of became part of the the master's thesis but um I imagine it was a really different experience to people who watched it when it was broadcast because there was a lot more speculation involved because it was airing week to week so you could guess kind of what happens next and theorize and speculate uh, with other people it was like one of the big one of the first real water cooler shows where people would discuss like and theorize and it, it promotes that kind of cult spectatorship uh, i just binged it um, by myself and you know would kind of dive into reddit after each episode just to see um other people's opinions on it my first impression on it um was that the and, and also in my rewatch as well was that the the pilot is extremely strong 
because mm-hmm. a lot of these big classic uh, pop cultural landmark series sometimes they take a while to get good mm. like x-files it's you know they say well wait until season two that's the golden years something like the simpsons yeah. we've got the golden years that begin maybe like after season one and this is a confession but i haven't seen uh, star trek the next generation yet i really want to but apparently that gets good at season three onwards so with <laughs> twin peaks it's like straight off it, it hits the ground running it, it, it you can get that kind of movie vibe in it as well because um it felt very like um like high culture even though it is a, like a pop culture cult text it kind of mixes the high and the low in terms of culture i don't really like those terms but um you know you, you can get that kind of cinematic quality but also kind of the weird cultish stuff as well like the way the characters are very uh eccentric and you've got like weird subversions of uh tropes like uh Dale Cooper, you think he's going to be like the serious detective, but he's actually really eccentric. Or um, Andy, the police, uh, the police officer, starts crying when he sees uh, the Laura's dead body. Is just the way it subverts expectations like that. It really does put it in that space between what people call high culture and the popular. You 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 hit the nail right on the head with so many different points here. So this uh, I should have mentioned this. This was important. So this pilot episode broadcast Sunday, April eighth, nineteen ninety, and I was far too young to watch Twin Peaks. Yes, so I uh, it was something that I heard about, and it's funny that you mentioned The Simpsons because my first kind of I, I I call it cultural osmosis where we kind of become familiar with certain things even though we haven't seen it directly whether it be through a, another TV show that makes reference to it or you know for me it would be walking in the video store and before I ever saw a Friday the 13th movie or before I ever saw a Nightmare on Elm Street movie I was familiar with Jason and the Hockey Mask, and I was familiar with Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger. And one of the things that I remember was that there's a scene in The Simpsons, it's probably during the golden years, where Homer is sitting there watching an episode yes. of Twin Peaks. And there's actually numerous, The Simpsons makes numerous references to Twin Peaks. So it was always one of those things, and I think it was something that, um, I don't think it was necessarily something my parents watched, but I definitely remember that they had friends that were talking about it. And like you said, it it allows... I almost think of it as something that... It, it kind of allowed certain Americans... And I say that just because I'm, I'm referencing my own uh, background here. <laughs> would allow kind of... Because soap operas, for the most part, come on during in the in in the afternoon here, so it kind of allowed. Because one of the things that I noticed in this latest rewatch is that there are some very soap opera ish tropes that are being utilized, but like you said, they're being they're they're not being utilized in the way that they would typically be utilized. They're they're being Yeah, it's it's very postmodern that way, isn't it? It's like even that we both knew about Twin Peaks from other texts first. Like Twin Peaks is considered by a lot of people as like the ultimate postmodern viewing experience and that extends even beyond the show itself that we saw it in something else first. Because a lot of a lot of the postmodern 
viewing experience is seeing a copy or a pastiche or a parody first mm. before you see the original. And it's the same with the soap opera tropes. They, like, they subvert it, but they, they parody it as well. Like, they're they, not straightforwardly using those tropes. No, it's, it's very much put through this um, Lynchian blender, I would call it. Uh, he's oh, definitely... Cool. he's Because there's also I, something that I, I, I noticed but it just really kind of resonated with me this last time is that the show, although it is old, it's from 1990, even in 1990, it seems like Twin Peaks is a little behind in the times. The fashion is very kind of, um, especially with someone like Audrey Horn with the pleated skirts and the, and the blouses. And then you've got someone like... Um, James, who's very much, he looks like he's straight out of a um, uh, James Dean movie. He looks like a you're, mm. you're kind of biker esque type. Uh, we before we go any further, I, we, uh, we're we're going to be having a conversation about Twin Peaks, so um, we're both familiar with the the plot and the characters. So to kind of keep up with us, you kind of have to know the show because there's far too many characters for us to to constantly have to go back and and reference and there's the plot while it is pretty straightforward here in the first episode it's going to get wildly erratic so uh i i urge all of you to kind of do what me and me and dr travers are doing and to kind of revisit twin peaks with us and because it's a timeless place twin peaks to me kind of feels like this timeless place where it's a logger town it's not it's not something like where you see a Silicon Valley where there's skyscrapers and um, mm. it's a metropolitan area. We, we're, we're dealing with a very rural area here and we, we deal with, we're, it's a mystery and w the mystery is, is, is set forth by a, a series of events that uh, will eventually culminate in finding out who the killers are, but then progressing further and that's something that Lynch and Frost wanted to do initially the, the death of Laura Palmer was the the kind of um the impetus for this this series but they just the, it was going to become less and less important as the mystery gets solved and the way that Twin Peaks grabs you is that the fact that these characters are so rich and erratic and they're some of them are stereotypes kind of a heightened stereotype and some of them are very uh subverted especially like you said agent dale cooper uh in my research i found something very interesting that you know when it when it came to developing and writing especially with this pilot it was it was almost like a split writing duties. They uh, Frost had um, <clears throat> Frost and Lynch developed the story, developed the characters, but uh, Mark Frost would would focus more so on certain characters, and Lynch would focus on others. And I think the way that it's very interesting to me that. David Lynch has gone on the record to say that the way that Agent Dale Cooper talks is very much like the way uh, Lynch himself talks. 
Yeah, I see him as a Lynch surrogate too. And they're all from different genres as well. Right. Like, um, H- Harry's from a Western. Yep. Yeah, Albert, who comes in a little later, is from sci-fi. Right. And it's nice seeing those different... Like It's like you pulled a character out of different shows and films and put them all in the same location. And even with the, the timelessness thing, that's almost like a breaking down of the kind of the discourses and structures we use to understand how things work. Like, suddenly, like, like time has dissolved and later on we'll see space dissolving as well with the way like the black lodge appears in the forest and the way kind of outside and inside are switched around you know how like within certain buildings it looks like you're outside in a forest because the walls are wooden yes and then outside you see like like things like a curtains things things like yeah curtains that you think they would belong in a living room but they're actually they're outside so i think that kind of like everything is almost inverted that's very it, it is it's very much I, I it's lynch uh, he doesn't talk a lot about his work so you kind of have to t- to to kind of get insight to where he might be coming from uh i i have seen a documentary about him but he you know and he talked about when he was growing up um he grew up in a suburban kind of rural kind of town very similar to twin peaks very similar to the town that we get in Blue Velvet. And, you know, for him, it was always about the underbelly. He comments, yeah. He commented once about, and he actually recreated the scene in Blue Velvet, that, you know, all of a sudden, um, I guess he was outside playing with some friends, and there was just this naked woman, like, running down the street, flailing her arms, and... um that scene is in Blue Velvet. And to me, uh, Blue Velvet, I, I, I reference just because it's not it's my favorite of David Lynch's works, but I always see the way that he looks at suburban life, and yeah. he does something very similar in Blue Velvet that he does with Twin Peaks, is that in Blue Velvet, you, you'll see like an old-fashioned... Uh, fire truck going down the street and the fireman's waving at the kids and you see white picket fences and roses and then he lowers the camera and you go into the dirt with the ants and then you kind of get to the underbelly, the darkness that's that's in all of these, these towns and th- to me that's very reminiscent of the opening of Twin Peaks. It's very peaceful. You have this beautiful music by Angelo Badalamonte, who, um, and now just the, those opening couple notes are just so synonymous with the, the scene of now entering Twin Peaks and just these shots of all these beautiful birch fir trees. And then you, you enter the darkness and um, the opening scene of, of the pilot opens with the man discovering uh, Laura Palmer on, on the beach. Um, yeah, I would see those two texts as, as the most similar in his entire filmography. And even that timelessness, like that idea, like right when you watch Twin Peaks, you're not entirely sure when it's set. It's almost poking fun at this idea of you know, the good old days and what we have now is people saying, make America great again. It's this idea of looking back <laughs> and romanticizing a time that, that wasn't good. I mean, Twin Peaks looks like really nice and peaceful in, in the pilot and then pretty soon you discover it's actually not a nice place to live and I do think it's poking fun at that idea of white picket fence America and being very critical of it and Blue Velvet does the same you know and, and 
I, I one of the things that I can relate to is that I grew up in a very um, upper middle class suburban town. Um, you know, I'm on the northeast, so just like kind of a the opposite end of the the country, but the town from all good schools, um, you know, upper middle class to to upper class income families, you know, nice, basically a very nice town. And then, um, every, every about six or I can't count. It was probably about every eight years, a horrific event would happen in my hometown. And it happened. I remember I was in the fourth grade and, um, uh, a family was, uh, uh murdered. Um, you know, there is a small small daughter um and mother and father were all killed by someone that um worked in like the Sunday school of the church that they went to so it speaks like so something like twin peaks really speaks to me because i know growing up in a town like that where everything looks very perfect on the outside that there's something there's always some something dark boiling underneath and that's just i mean you could say that about pretty much you know every town or city has something like that it's just mm-hmm. sometimes in, in cities it comes out because it happens so much more frequently that it almost becomes uh passe and it just becomes another uh, it just becomes another notch in the belt or it just becomes redundant because we're used to burglaries and thefts and robberies and all this sort of thing but if you're in a very quiet quiet town and then all of a sudden uh the homecoming queen winds up on the shore wrapped in plastic that's that's when everything starts to unravel were there any things that you noticed and i've got a couple but i'm gonna let you go first were there things that you noticed upon this rewatch that you hadn't noticed before i think a lot of the the men in the town are, are, are very suspicious now that i know what happens um it, like dr jacoby it, it's a very unsettling scene now that we know what he does later in the series mm. um cooper driving into twin peaks um i said this in the last uh time uh, the last podcast uh that there is a suggestion that he never escapes the lodge and this is kind of a circular story so where exactly is cooper coming from in that scene is he coming from the lodge it has time loop back on itself a bit like the way it did in uh, lost highway uh, I noticed um, the supernatural is kept very um, minimal in this, except for the end where we see Bob looking in the mirror. And that, that actually takes a minute to see. Uh, sometimes people, uh, I notice that people miss that shot of Bob in the mirror uh, entering uh, Sarah Palmer's living room in the very last scene. I, well, I'm sure that you know that that was a mistake, right? It was, yeah. yes, and a very and, lucky mistake as well, that, because it is. It's like I'm. I'm not scared easily. Uh, I, I love horror, and I find horror more interesting than scary. But I think Bob is a character. This idea of, you know, a guy in double denim <laughs> entering your home, <laughs> yeah. entering, entering your home inexplicably. Uh, that's that, that's that's quite chilling. Yeah, so for those of you who, who don't know what we're talking about, the character of Bob that gets fleshed yeah. out more in the series, um, it was a it was a happy mistake. And David Lynch is is uh, noted especially in this project um, for allowing improv. Um, I always butcher this. I'm just going to say improv because I'm going to s- 
stumble over my words if I don't. I'm stumbling all night as well. I don't know what's <laughs> happening today. <laughs> so, um, and I think that he allows improv in a, in this project because it was a TV series and that he knew that he was going to have more episodes to develop this. For the most part, if I had to warrant a guess, I would say that he keeps things pretty kind of on book for his feature films. I think that he's pretty, yeah. he, he's got a very complete picture of what he wants to do. So I think that he's very, um, I would say, uh, and I'm just, this is just my own personal opinion. I think that if you're dealing with David Lynch as a feature film director, he's going to want you to know the lines exactly the way they're written. He's going to want you to, to, to perform the lines exactly the way they're written. He's going to want certain camera shots and like, like this because he knows that he's got two hours to tell a story. And I think, um, so again, this is just my own theory, but, but to me that I think that he saw in getting a, a series that he would get to do these, these happy little mistakes instead of having to correct it, he utilized it. And one of the, um, production assistants who would later become Bob was not an actor. He was just working behind the scenes and they were uh, working in Laura Palmer's bedroom and they, they were, they were warning him not to get trapped while they were moving furniture. And for some reason that kind of sparked an idea in David Lynch's head about um, just like if this man came out of nowhere, if you've got this very kind of picturesque and, um, almost kind of the stereotypical um, teenage girl's bedroom. It's it's pink. Everything is perfect. Like everything is exactly where it should be, which is like the exact opposite of what my bedroom was like as a teenager. Everything was chaotic and messy. Um, but you know, just having this evil force come out of like behind a bureau. And again, um, that same production assistant was caught in the um, in the reflection of the camera, and um, was then utilized. It was then put into the show, and he's been in the series ever since. So it's such an unusual shot, isn't it? It's it's not like the usual monstrous reveals because if, if an, any other director had a character like Bob at their disposal, they would make like a very big deal of like his first appearance it would be a close-up there'd be like a lot of zooming into his facial features whereas this is just like caught in a mirror and it's it's kind of like hereditary where you see tony collette climbing up the walls in the background it's more effective because it's more natural it's like if you if you did encounter something supernatural that's how i imagine it would go down well absolutely because you know if you or i encountered something supernatural there's not going to be dramatic music playing in the background it's going it'd be really cool if there was no that would be that would be excellent i would love that but you know that's just not the way things happen i think that it's it's for for a series that gets so bizarre and so twisted um this like you said the pilot is relatively grounded i mean we don't get too much we don't we don't even i could have sworn and i think this is what happened is that i had um the first time that i saw twin peaks i actually like this is back when they sold vhs tapes i think that i got episodes one and two on one tape there was like tapes couldn't fit that much information so um for some reason 
when when I was watching the pilot and it, it, it wrapped up and the credits came up, I could have sworn there was a shot in the Black Lodge. And I know that that's, that's what happens in episode two. We get into that. Mm. Um, and also, uh, spoiler for the international version, um, some of the footage that is uh, going to be seen in the international version uh, ended up, Lynch liked it so much that he ended up using it um, in episode two. So when we get to episode two, uh, we're going to be seeing some of that that information. Um, what are some of the what were some of the highlights of the pilot to you? I, I forgot how humorous it was. Yes, and how uncomfortably humorous it was. Like when Laura's death is announced to the school, that scene is really funny. When everyone starts laughing, no, so when everyone starts crying, I was laughing at it. It's and like the like over the top shrieks and people running through the school, people that barely knew Laura's just. <laughs> I can, I can see that happening in reality when people do this kind of whole performative grief to get attention and if someone dies that you barely knew there you'll say oh that that was my best friend and everyone will feel sad for you and you get attention it, it really it, it tapped into that idea for me and it was something I don't know I think I was just so overwhelmed by the pilot when I first saw it about like the supernatural elements I was waiting for them to appear of course they didn't they don't until much later in the series but um it, like now that like upon reflection rewatching it's it's a lot more humorous than I thought. It is. And like you said, that scene, it, just because, like, the, the way the principal, like, yeah, like, he puts his hand over his face and starts crying. Um, like, why is he that upset? <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's probably going to reflect poorly on him as a principal. I, yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Um, uh, what Some of the things that I, I noticed in the, in the pilot this time around that I didn't notice before was, well, first of all, speaking of the high school scenes, there is a random kid in one scene, I think it's like right before um, one of the kids gets called into the office. Anyway, he's in the background and he crab dances from one side of the screen to the other, but just like out of the, just, you know, because it's random, it's kind of, it's so lynchy, because everyone, you know, it's just, who, nobody crab dances in the middle of a high school hallway, <laughs> an abandoned high school hallway, so that's, I'm just like, I had to rewind it and watch, I'm just like, this is just so bizarre. So, um, you, you think they're from musicals, uh, him and Bobby, uh, like, you know how they come from different genres, well, that's one theory, but uh, they could have been, you know, pulled out of a musical and just dropped into this world. Right, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, it's, it's, Twin Peaks, I love it because it's such a melting pot, there are so many different uh, archetypes and stereotypes of different kinds of people that we have, and what we're going to get into that as the series goes on, um, there's not too much to talk about character development wise thus far because the pilot is simply that it's kind of that it's an appetizer it's to get you um ready for the what the rest of the series is going to be uh that being said something that i noticed this time around that i i never really noticed before is that all the little um the little crumbs that are left behind, the, the the clues that are left behind to resolve the murder are here. And I didn't notice until um, this last time. And what really solidified this thought in my head was that when um, Sheriff Truman first approaches his, 
Leland Palmer about his his daughter's death before Sheriff Truman says anything to his to uh, Leland. Leland immediately breaks down and says that she's dead. Now, that's a huge clue because, you know, if the sheriff came up to you, approached you in your place of business, would your immediate reaction be that my daughter is dead? This this law enforcement agent hasn't said anything to you, and he immediately breaks down and says that she's dead, and of course it will be revealed in season two that he is in fact the killer, one of the killers. And it does lend credence to the theory that he does remember being Bob and that he's conscious of being Bob because you've got like 50% evidence that he's no idea when he's being possessed and you've also got like another 50% evidence that he, he does know. And there's always there's that like push-pull between both and we never get a straight answer for that. No. But I think that's quite appropriate thematically to the theme of abuse where it, it's, it's at once denied and believed by yes. different people, by different perspectives. And, and speaking of that... Um... Yeah, we, we, we're introduced to most of the, the main characters here. And obviously it's an only an hour and a half pilot, so there's so many characters littered throughout. But um, I, the first character that, are, that we're introduced to is actually, well, in, in, in the version that I watched, because the, I think, I'm not sure how far the intros go, but at least all of season one, you have the uh, ability to play, and I guess that this is the way that the show was broadcast, is that each episode was introduced by the log lady. She's, si- yeah. she's sitting there, and she welcomes, and, and this, in this pilot episode, she welcomes us to Twin Peaks and tells us there's something strange in the woods around Twin Peaks, and that this is all about the mystery of life and the mystery of death. And she kind of she just like lays it all out for you some of the some of these are stories of madness some of them are humorous some of them are horrific so we get we kind of it's kind of um it's like sitting down at a restaurant and getting the menu and you can kind of see all the different options and um if you choose to of course return um to twin peaks so you're going to you're going to find more and more stuff that um that comes out one of the, the one of the things that I found kind of that I didn't realize how tonally uh, weird or like kind of um, tonally uh, inverted is the roadhouse and the music that is playing at the roadhouse because it's it's set up to be a biker bar and later on especially in uh, Twin Peaks to Return. We'll be we'll be spending a lot of time at the Roadhouse, but but this first time around, we have Julie Cruz singing these very beautiful songs. Uh, one of which is called the "Falling," and um, I forget what the other one is. It's somewhere in my. Notes. It's quite meta as well because we've got a very sentimental scene between um, Ed and um, what, what's her name? She's in the, the uh, cafe. Norma. Norma, yeah, Ed and Norma, and 
it's it's almost like the singer is like backing up their their conversation. They're they're having a very sentimental conversation, and then the singer, she can't hear them, but somehow it it matches up perfectly with what they're talking about. Well, that's because the lyrics were written by Mr. David Lynch. So yes, but it's, it's throwing attention to this. Yes, the yeah. artifice of the show about like, fa- a, a number of times throughout the pilot and on all the episodes. We it, we're, we're told that we're watching a show, and Lynch yeah. is almost showing off his ability to um, get us encapsulated by what he's saying because he's drawing attention at once that this is artifice, but at the same time he he can get us invested in these characters even though he's foregrounding that they're fake, that this isn't real. No, no, that's very, very true. Or at least what what their reality is is not our reality or even what are some of the other characters' reality. And uh, especially yeah. someone like Leland, like you were saying, that goes from... It becomes much more apparent throughout the series that he's... It's he's his mood swings, um, is, especially in Fire Walk with Me, are are all over the place, and he goes from being a, a concerned, loving father to being verbally abusive and um, emotionally abusive and other forms of abuse. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of foregrounding of the artifice of the show itself lines up with like Leland's artifice. He's actually this monster. He's he abuses his own child, but he's presenting himself as something else. Right, and that's another thing that, that that's another theory that I have about um, these uh, that I used to have about some of some of the people that I grew up with in town. That they had these these very perfect lives, and they had these ordinary lives. But then all of a sudden, something will some truth will come out. And um, yeah, you know. I remember reading an interview where Lynch says that he said whenever some guy is revealed as a monster the reaction is generally oh wow he was such a nice guy right i had no idea yeah no and that 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 comes i mean that just comes to mind with like the the serial a lot of the serial killers that um the most famous ones that oh he's such a nice person he was such a nice guy or you know hell john wayne gacy used to dress up like a clown to to um to, to entertain yeah, the children. Fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's one of those things. It's um it's kind of like the the last person you would suspect and um I'm I'm kind of glad that we get more of a an um that this became a series and not just a, yeah. a movie because you know, we're going to get into the international version, but that that wraps up everything. The whole story has been told. And it's very clear to me that this was a this was a town that that Frost and Lynch fell in love with, and that the characters that they created, they genuinely, they they have um, affinity for them, yeah. and like they have an affinity, and they're criticizing it at once. That duality again. Mm-hmm. Which is which is a brilliant, which is just brilliant because how many television shows would do that? And again, that goes back to when I was um, rambling in the the beginning about the development of this series. I could see executives saying, "Well, this is, I mean, this is a Sunday night show, so it's going. It's probably um, it was on ABC, and then so this was 1990. Basic cable was kind of a thing, but a lot of people just had the old uh, rabbit ear antennas, so they would be getting four or five channels. Yeah, because millions of people watched Twin Peaks, and like you said, 
it became a phenomenon. It, it was like a... Yeah, and it's criticizing the, the medium of TV itself. Right. Isn't it the way Laura Palmer looks out of the screen. It's, it's like they're saying, yeah, this is a character in a TV show. And even the very last episode of Twin Peaks, she kind of crosses that boundary between TV and reality again. So in the first episode, we have her looking out of the screen at Cooper, but also at the viewer. And then, then in the last episode, it's like she crosses over into the real world she, she, she crosses dimensions and um, we see the real inhabitant of in the palmer household yeah. that actually lives there in our world so it's almost like this boundary between reality and fiction and it's kind of breaking down like throughout the series but it, it's it was something i noticed um upon rewatch of this episode a very last episode of the return it's it's a nice callback to that interview scene where laura looks out of the tv and i read as well um this it's like how it's criticizing the medium of TV itself, even though it is it is a TV show. <laughs> like it's it's like it's one and the same, as they say in the Black Lodge. Right. Um, it's uh, I read it's like the Gothic is invading the family home. Something dangerous is invading the family home. Like when um, people started watching this show, like it's, it's this kind of dark content that people weren't exactly used to back then. Yeah. And it's kind of like how Bob invades the Palmer home and um, Sarah Palmer's like over-the-top reactions to what she's seeing. It's kind of like the viewers, like maybe very conservative viewers at the time and even today, overreacting to a work of fiction, to some like, dark fictional content that they've seen on TV. Sure, the the, the darkness that's going to corrupt the youth. The uh, We need to put parental yeah. advisory stickers on all our music and we need to rate tv shows you know tv pg tv ma but they do something like you said there's a lot of darkness in this show but there's also just like i said there's like a goofy crab walking kid and yeah. some of the acting and i think that these are all talented performers but i think some of them are just you know they're act they're asked to portray their characters a certain way and I used to find the character of Lucy very annoying. I now find her very endearing, and I actually she's one of my favorite characters because she's so innocent. Um, Andy, when he when he's introduced as crying, like he's he's, you're almost thinking like, this is the kind of like, uh, this is the kind of cops they have. Like really, this guy's breaking down. <laughs> uh, and then you have um. You just have some, some, one of the things that, one of the, there was a scene between, um, I always could, James, no, yes, James and, um, Donna, where they kiss for the first time, and he apologized. So over the top. Yes. He says, I'm sorry, and then, like, he gives, like, this, like, really, like, like, almost like he's trying to model for the cover of a magazine, he goes... I take it back. I'm not sorry. And I'm just like, it's, yes, it's so over the top. It's so, it's so soap opera-ish. But I, but there's something, whereas if that happened in any other show, I probably would turn it off. But something with Twin Peaks, just because the story is so interesting and there's so many different characters and they all have their little quirks and they all have their little backstories, and they all are, um, in one way or another, lying. Like, there's no, every, not necessarily, li maybe lying by omission in some cases, but they're all, they, every, I think that, um, 
I'm just going to steal the tagline from Fire Walk With Me. I, I think that it says, in a town like Twin Peaks, no one is innocent. And I think that's very, very true. Um, clearly, the Palmer household is in great disorder. Um, uh, there's a there's a character that I completely I forgot Donna had a little sister she must not show up a lot re- re- regularly yeah I didn't remember that either it's <laughs> like I actually I was like, thought it was a friend um, in like in my memory I thought she she snuck out from a friend's house but um it's her sister I, I, I have no memory of that character no me the I'm like oh Harriet the, their sisters right okay okay now Donna's sneaking out the window right and. Even with all the darkness, like especially the scenes between Donna and her father, the the doctor, um, he seems to be, like be trying to um, overcompensate in a way for what happened with Laura Palmer, because he's saying that, like you know, when Donna runs away, he understood why she ran away, and that him and his wife are so happy to have a daughter like her, and um, but. I mean, everyone's got their secrets, and they all get slowly revealed um, throughout the series. Any, um, and then we have, of course, uh, Kyle MacLachlan as Agent Dale Cooper, who, uh, you know, for better or for worse, it's one of those roles that he's just become synonymous with. And yeah. you know, when twin, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's kind of a cool thing i know he didn't want to be typecast but a pretty awesome character i mean if you're going to get typecast to someone it might as well be agent dale cooper right and, and like you said it's very much kind of um uh a lynch avatar in a way kind of the way lynch sees the it sees the world i guess because some of the scenes with dale cooper he seems at first he almost seems inept and yeah. then he quickly quickly we realize that he is a very competent um investigator but some of the way like he's just he, he reminds me almost of a young child um seeing the trees and seeing um a rabbit and like he's just so amazed and um it's it is the, almost like he came out of the Black Lodge, like he's never been to Earth before. He's almost like an alien yes. looking at the natural world. Right. It's And um, we're going to get into all the different Cooper doppelgangers um, in the return. But right now we kind of get um, and something else that I, I just thought of that I, I, I liked that they explain this because um, I'm not sure how much familiarity you have with um uh, American law enforcement, but I—I uh, I remember thinking, why would an FBI agent be called in for one one girl? Yeah. But I was forgetting that he's actually called in because another girl escaped this um the either the Black Lodge or the the train car for this. For the sake of this episode, he's actually called in for the um, investigation of this girl, Ronnie or Ronette, which again harkens back to these um, like an old doo band. Like I think there is a, a band called the Ronettes that were uh, a Motown band. Um, we get some, a more of this timeless quality cult. And so the fact that she crossed 
state lines is why the FBI is brought in. And I thought that was just a nice little tidbit because that explains everything for me because I'll be someone that would nitpick that and be like, <laughs> why, you know, they wouldn't be calling in the FBI right away. So he's actually called in and then he actually, um, I had, I had thought that Teresa Banks was from Twin Peaks, but apparently she's not because he makes reference to Teresa Banks in the, in the town hall meeting uh, about a girl that was found murdered years before. And of course that investigation, um, we saw in Fire Walk With Me that was uh, initially conducted by Chris Isaac, who disappeared, and then mm. uh, Dale Cooper. So, again, Cooper is coming back, but like you said, there's something about his reactions because if he had been there before for Teresa Banks, wouldn't he remember all these trees? Wouldn't he? Yeah, and who who reacts like that to trees right. anyway? I mean, it's it's it shouldn't be that novel. No, and <laughs> it's and the way that he reacts to cherry pie, it's like it's yeah, like it's a, like he, his weirdness. Like on the one hand, it it's very alien, and on the other hand, it's kind of a weirdly realistic representation of someone's psychology. Because sometimes in TV shows, you get the smart characters, and they are always smart, and then you have. They're not smart characters, and they never say anything smart. Whereas a, like a human being, <laughs> right. you know, it's kind of a mix of both. I mean, the smartest person in the world can say something ridiculous every now and then. And I, I just, I, I like that. That's that's a thing in this show, and it's it's not something I see very often. Um, I've seen it in that show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is made, which was produced years later. But it, it's not something that I often see. No, like you said, uh, uh, the FBI agents are usually portrayed as. Um very formal, by-the-book, kind of no-nonsense. Yeah, like, if you're smart, you're just smart, you're nothing else. You're As, never silly, you're never funny, it's, you're, you're just a smart character. Right, so we've got to, we get, um, we we see the seeds of all these characters developing, and um, they're, they're planted so well in this pilot. This pilot um, was, yeah, it was, it was critically well-received, it did very, very well, um, I think over 30 million people turned in, um, which is just unheard of nowadays yeah. with streaming and the amount of different channels that are available. You got to keep in mind that we're talking about something that, you know, happened th uh, over 30 years ago. So, you know, th 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 that's the kind of show and the kind of impact that it had. And, um, um, off of this success, like you said, it became a water cooler show. It became the show that you would talk about and, did you see Twin Peaks last night? Can you believe this and this happened? It became that kind of thing. And um, embracing the soap opera-ish tendencies and the soap opera-ish tropes that are just, if you turn on any episode of The Bold and the Beautiful or uh, As the World Turns or anything like this, uh, both my grandmothers, my grandfathers, my both my grandmothers were avid daytime soap opera fans. And so something like Twin Peaks to me is something that um, a housewife w could watch then with her husband. And there's something there for everything. It's a very adult show, but there's something about it. There's there's a lot of romance, which so if you're a romantic at heart, there's romance there. There's mystery. If you just want to watch something weird, I mean, this has got it in spades. But the story is is just 
it's just beginning for us. This is this is just the yeah. pilot episode. So w- while we wrap this up, what were some of um, um, we were going to try to do this for each episode? Um, a standout scene or scenes, and um, a particular character that you you kind of um, you thought kind of stood out in in just this episode. And I have to say, Dale Cooper just like how nice and friendly he is to everyone. You, you don't expect that with the kind of the hardened detective trope. No. It's usually something out of a noir. Yeah, and uh, just speaking of like the noir, the soundtrack is I just yeah. love it. You got the um a lot of upright bass, um snapping, a lot of, jazz. A lot of yeah, the, yeah, just a lot of jazzy kind of riffs and that was um all thanks to Mr. Angelo Badalamonte who's uh, scored a number of films that I've talked about on the show. He's um an excellent composer and even if the movie's not going to be good, if I see that he's doing the music I know at least the music's going to be good. Yeah, you'll get a good soundtrack that you can, you can purchase later. Yes. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, he composed the music, and Julie Cruz sang, um, sings two beautiful songs in the pilot. And um, that's easy to remember because when we get deeper into this series, we're going to have... It's weird to me that we're going to have, like, musical guests each week. That's kind of, yeah. that's kind of what the return has. and I, I, I kind of It's get very a, Buffy, and I'm here for that. Yes, but again, I kind of just think that's just Lynch again, kind of um, criticizing television while also making brilliant television. And I I can't think of anyone else. I would say that there's, um, and I'll just I'm going to end my little my little rap uh, on this note because you you brought it up so succinctly earlier that a lot of shows take time to find their feet and. Yeah. Um, they take time you gotta you you watch well you 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 gotta dig in man just stay with the series it gets better i promise you um and some shows just never um hit the ground running like something like this does sorry we're in the podcast um the only thing that i can think of that was ever as was as powerful to me uh, upon first viewing and then upon reviewing as something as powerful as twin peaks was um the first season of true detective which i i still think is just one of the most genius um just seasons of television ever but that these are these are not uh a dime a dozen most shows need need time to develop but i think i think that you have someone as brilliant as lynch bringing in a collaborator to help him flesh this world out is why we get such a powerful opening to this story. So powerful that, you know, if it didn't go to series, that it was just going to end up being a feature film. I mean, no other, very few other directors or creators get an opportunity to do something like that, you know? And very ahead of his time as well, because I know a lot of the famous movie directors are turning to TV, a lot of the, the movie actors are turning to streaming like netflix series this is quite ahead of the the game in that way yeah because i gotta i gotta think that people were probably you know lynch had done probably about four movies so far yeah uh eraser head elephant man dune and blue velvet and then oh what a good run right 
Yeah. Uh, so people, I, I'm sure that you know, TV were 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 itching to get a hold of him, uh, especially um, um, all, with all the prestige that came with um, the Elephant Man. I mean that 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 movie put that that cemented him as just like as an iconic director. So, um, but to me, yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you, Agent Dale Cooper. And I, I have a feeling that he's going to be our favorites for a, co- uh, a lot of yeah. these episodes just because he's such an interesting character. I, I love the, like, he's just, just the way that he interacts with people. So brilliant. He's tough and assertive when he needs to be. Then he's kind and understanding and I'm gonna say that um, the Dale Cooper scene that I'm gonna highlight from this pilot episode is is a small scene it's um, just him and Sheriff Truman sitting in the car they're staking out the roadhouse and he's whittling and you can tell that he's hoping that Sheriff Truman would ask him why he's whittling, but Sheriff Truman doesn't. So he he asks Sheriff Truman to ask him why he's whittling, and then he says that in a town like Twin Peaks, the yellow traffic light means slow down, don't speed up. Yeah, his worldview will get destroyed. Yes. In subsequent episodes, that whole concept of a white picket fence small town America is going to blow up for him and the viewer. Yeah, it's, but it just speaks to me. You just got to slow down. And I think that's what, um, what David Lynch would tell all of us. Mm. Just, just as general life advice, just slow down, you know? And like an unusually wholesome character as well, because we see a lot of, well, nowadays we see a lot of like edgy characters, edgy protagonists, Mm -hmm. protagonists who want to, you know, change things, damn it. And this this guy is completely different than that. There's a sincerity to him that's quite unusual. We live in this age where we kind of cloak ourselves with cynicism and irony to protect ourselves from her- terror, as Britt Marling says. But, um, you know, Cooper kind of looks you right in the eye and is sincere about it. I think that's still kind of refreshing, even though this was made, I don't know, like 30 years ago. No, it is very refreshing. It, it kind of reminds me now of the amount of... um. Not with the, not with Agent Cooper. At, at least not with this version of a- Agent Cooper. We're gonna get, we'll get into it as the series goes on. But um, there's so many passive aggressive people these days, and he, like you said, he's very sincere. He's very honest. He's almost there's an element of night na- naivete to him. Yeah, there is. Which I I I like because that. That allows for very different um, relationships to develop throughout time, and of course, we're we're saying this um, as people that have seen the entire series, so we know what we're talking about. I kind of wish that I could take a time capsule back and and kind of see what some of the first um, reactions to Twin Peaks are. I might I might might have to do some of that research to see if I can find any. Um, some old interviews with cast members or anything, but um, we haven't even talked about... I remember about... one fan being very excited about it and saying that Lynch is going to just explode the show into a fiery ball of weirdness. And, I mean, that, that, that's one fan, fan's interpretation of what they saw. Oh, I saw a lot of people um, 
for the most part, it was very, very well received, both by yeah. uh, by audiences and critically. But one of the negative, and I saw one critic had written about it. He goes, "This this is just going to be a disaster. No one's going to watch it. There's no one to root for. The the characters are unlikable, and eh, you know that's that's that one person sounds really fun. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, that, that's I mean, that's what Lynch delivered in 1990. He delivered a TV show. That truly was unlike anything you had seen on TV. And it, it still is. I mean, that Cooper seems alien to a lot of people because he's nice. It says a lot about people's experience. It's kind of like the Ted Lasso effect. Or, like, there's something off about that character. Oh, yeah, that they're a nice person. That That's kind of unusual, isn't it? <laughs> right, because you just think about some of the most famous uh, TV characters are... are um they do despicable things. Someone like Tony Soprano. Well, yes, half of him is a family man. The other half's a cold-blooded mafia boss, you know? Yeah, and to, to the point where, like, a lot of serial killer characters and villains have become likable to a lot of people. The, the traditional heroes are, are kind of seen as privileged, but narcissistic. This kind of a switch uh, in terms of that characterization. Right. I mean... And, people see it. And in Dale Cooper's world, we'd never have a TV series called Hannibal about a, a cannibalistic psychopath. <laughs> and yet Hannibal is a very likable character. I mean, the yes. equal opportunist in terms of murder doesn't discriminate. Anyone kills anyone that that, they, that he encounters and is the only one in Silence of the Lambs that respects Clarice. And yet the, we see the more passive-aggressive co-workers that she has as the bad guys in a film where there's a, a murderous cannibal. It's, it's that kind of duality. Yeah, which I just I love those sorts of things because those characters are not one note. They they feel more, yeah. they feel human. They feel real to me, and I, I'm I'm very eager to to um to to revisit Twin Peaks next week for episode two. Um, we've talked uh, quite a, a long time. We, we were we were going to try to keep this to thirty minutes, but um, yeah, unfortunately, it's a long episode, I guess. Uh, it is. It's a ninety-minute episode, so there's a lot to um to to get into, and and next week we won't have to talk about the development of the TV series, anything like that. Um, I'll only bring up those background elements when they start become uh, relevant to the actual quality of the show, which we'll get into with season two. Um, but for the most part, um, final. Th- I I I I like that the scene. It didn't. I like the way that this episode ended with uh, Laura's mother on the couch and horrified because she's seeing this vision of um, the half heart necklace that uh, Laura Laura had one half of the heart and James had the other half and. Um, uh, Donna and James had buried it previously in the episode and the episode one ends with um, a gloved hand digging out that necklace so lots of good stuff to come um, Sean any final thoughts for the first episode of Twin Peaks Northwest Passage it's just that, that final scream mirrors the final scream in the return it's just something that I realize now the final yeah, absolutely yes it does very it's much a spooky one. it is it's a very um what do they call it uh blood curdling scream or very like there's, uh, no, there's no resolution to what happens in this it just kind of loops back to the beginning the same way as lost highway does he like lynch presents us with impossible problems 
Right, but he, he, yes, he brings the darkness, but he has such a way with um, making it, to- I would say, more tolerable. Maybe not tolerable is the right word, but more, maybe more digestible than some people are kind of uh, used to. So, um, so yeah, that that was our first visit to Twin Peaks, and um, we ask that you join us on this journey back to Twin Peaks. Brew yourself a cup of coffee. Get that uh, slice of cherry pie going. We will try to think of a, a, a title for this little series that we're doing. But for right now, we're just going to be um, the Twin Peaks recap. And this has been episode one for Dr. Sean Travers. My name is Chris. Please join me on my main show. And please join me again through this journey back to Twin Peaks.